Marsha. That was outstanding. And choir, thank you. That's just a foretaste of what we're going to have. E, thank you for accompanying. This is exciting. A week from tonight. Looking forward to that. We're going to start a Christmas series, an Advent series, and it's entitled Understanding Christmas. Creation, Cradle, Cross, and Crown. We're going to look at each one of these aspects over the next four weeks because oftentimes we get focused on the cradle and we don't understand the fuller significance of Christmas. Now, I really want to thank the kids for being up front with us and doing this demonstration. I hope you uh, never think of uh, mission giving and praying in a, a different light than, than hanging on and praying and supporting them. So I hope that was a good visual uh, statement to make to you. But kids, thank you for doing it. And the one thing about being a child, you know, Christmas is so child-centric with the, with the gifts and the giving and all that. But remember when you were a child, didn't it seem to the time from Thanksgiving to Christmas just seemed to drag on. It was like a, um, a change in the universe. Time just seemed to slow down. It was just miserable waiting for Christmas. We were so anticipating Christmas Day coming because it's such a wonderful time of the year. However, in God's plan, anticipation and waiting have always been a part of his plan. And we're going to see that today. Now, when we understand Christmas, we want to look at creation. And when we do, we're going to look at Christmas, we're going to look at eternity past, and I pick creation, one, because of all the C's, creation, cradle, cross, and crown. Okay, that's a good way to remember. But also, there are events that happened before creation that speak of Christmas. There are events that happen immediately after Christmas, or creation, that speaks of Christmas. And we're going to look at those today. It says in the book of Ephesians, I'm sorry, in Peter, we were just in Peter, and this is a, a, a phrase, and this is First Peter 1.20, I, I have this messed up, but it's First Peter 1.20, says, For he, speaking of Jesus, was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. You're going to see this phrase, I'm going to uh, touch on it three times here, before the foundations of the world, before creation, Jesus was foreknown. The Gospel of John, in the high priestly prayer that Jesus makes, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus exists before the world was, before the foundations of the earth. And so this um, is an important phrase we're going to see. We're going to go back to creation, before the creation, and we see that God had us in mind then as well. And it says this in uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 4, it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. You didn't just happen when you were born. 
Before the foundations of the world, God knew that you were going to be born, that you were going to live. And he had you in mind that, he, that we would be blameless one day before the throne. That was his plan and purpose. And we're going to see how this plays out here right after creation. But you were foreknown by God before the foundations of the earth. And so the Christmas plan and strategy, we have to look back to creation to understand it and to appreciate it. Now God's plan was to create man to know him and to fellowship with him, to have intimacy with him. And we'd see that in the garden, how they would spend time together, one with another, each day in the cool of the day, it says. He would communicate with them and he'd demonstrate his love for man. And this plan was made before the foundation of the earth. But we see in creation, when Adam and Eve were formed, that uh, this was God's plan. And it's been said that the Bible is God's love letter to us. And that Christmas is but one demonstration, purposeful demonstration, a powerful demonstration of his love for us. It's one of many. And we see that play out. And when we look in the garden and we talk about God having fellowship with us and with Adam and Eve. And they would spend time in the garden together. Adam and Eve end up sinning. They disobey God. And what we have to understand that uh, when they sinned in the garden, uh, God did not revert to plan B. For God, there's no plan B. And this was part of his plan. This is a way to demonstrate his love for us and his desire to have a relationship with us and that we know who he is, that he's the sovereign of the universe and that he desires for us to walk with him and that he wanted to demonstrate that to us so that there's never any doubt This is not God's plan B. This was his plan all along from the foundations of the earth. As we read in Ephesians, he wanted to present us blameless before him. He knew that the fall would occur and that he would take care of that. That was his plan before the foundations of the earth. And we see it now played out in the fall. In Genesis, we see... Uh, the way God takes care of this sin problem. And this is in Genesis 3, chapter 15, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. And it says, And I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Bruise you on the head. That's a fatal wound. Bruise you on the heel, that's not a fatal one. So someone's going to come and take care of this and deal with the serpent and bruise him on the head. One of the favorite scenes that in The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson movie about the Lord Jesus' crucifixion and suffering on the cross, that it opens up with this serpent moving and it and there's a foot, a sandal's foot, and he takes the heel and crushes the serpent. That was promised in Genesis chapter 3, close to creation's beginning. We don't know how long a time there was from when God created the heavens and the earth and the seven days of creation, six days of creation and a day of rest, how long it was to when Adam and Eve sinned. But we know it was early on in the 
big scheme of things. But God had a plan. This verse is called the Proto-Evangelium. That's a Latin word, meaning the first good news of a Savior, the promise of a Savior. And here it is in Genesis chapter 3. And it's going to play out for us throughout the scriptures. Now, God will use men moved by the Holy Spirit. And they're called prophets. And they're going to communicate the promise of mankind. As the Tarkington family came and lit this first candle, this first candle of Advent is called the, the, the prophet's candle, the candle of hope. Each one of these candles will have a distinct name and a distinct target in the Christmas story. But you can't appreciate the Christmas story apart from the prophets and their great ministry to us. But it speaks of a hope. Now, when we want understanding Christmas, we want to understand this ministry of the prophets. Because if we understand what they were doing, what they're about, they have very, very valuable things to tell us. Now, we know that a prophet has two functions. It's one that tells forth God's will, his word. We have major sections of a Bible that deal with that. And it also foretells the future if people are disobedient, as well as God's sovereign plan for the future. That's the role of a prophet. Now, we have, they did this in many ways. They would be writing prophets, or they'd be oral prophets. They'd act things out, or they'd be symbolic, laying on their sides for a period of time. Or, um, you know, having a little siege, like I did with this display. They would act something out, very symbolically. Now, they warn of judgment if the people did not turn back to God. That's a major theme. But it also had a major theme, a message of great hope, especially of a Savior. Now, in this message of great hope, we know that hope, as we look at in Peter, we were looking at Peter and that we said that he's the apostle of hope. We looked at that book that he was addressing us as ambassadors of hope, and we said that hope is a confident expectation. It's not a hope-for thing. It's a confident expectation. It's a certainty. It implies waiting. Waiting expectantly. As well as a longing, a desiring, eagerly desiring something. And so when we understand biblical hope, we can see the role and the functions that the prophets played. Now, Prophecy in the Bible is a major distinction of the Judeo-Christian faith. Judaism in the Old Testament and, uh, and Christianity in the Old and New Testament is distinct from every other religion in the world because there's such a major portion of the scriptures that is devoted to prophecy. Do you know that one-fourth to one-third of our Bible deals with prophecy? Now, Jesus fills... He fulfills 109, there's 109 prophecies of Jesus' coming to earth the first time. 109. From Genesis to Revelation, there's 109 of them. Or Genesis to Malachi, there's 109 Old Testament prophets. Now, just looking, is Pam here? Uh, she's our mathematician. So anyway, the probability 
of this happening and being met in one person, if just eight of these uh, pro- uh, prophecies would occur in one person, just eight of them, not the 109, just eight of them would be one times 10 to the 17th power. That's one times 10 or one with 17 zeros behind it. That's the chances of winning that being that person with just eight of them. So is it coincidental that these, more than these eight, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ? No. In fact, it's a great assurance and confidence that he is that one that was promised. Now, let me just illustrate this for you so you understand the significance of these prophecies being met in this one man, Jesus. Take my state, the state of Texas, great big old state, and if you were to take that state and take a bunch of silver dollar coins, and you were to cover that entire state with silver dollar coins, two feet deep, and you were to take one of them, and you'd paint that black, and you'd throw it out there, the chances of a person putting on a blindfold and going out and picking up that one black painted silver dollar from all of them, two feet deep, now you can put it underneath, the chances of him picking up that one silver dollar across that great expanse would be one times ten to the seventeenth power. That's pretty awesome. I put that number up on the board. It's, you might have a hard time seeing this, but you see it's one with the 17 zeros. And about the um, the ninth zero to the uh, right, I put an underline. Those are about your chances of winning the mega ball, like one to 245,000, 245 million are your odds of winning mega ball. So add another nine zeros to that. That's what we're talking about. So the prophets, these are just eight of the 109 prophecies. So it demonstrates that when he meets all 109, there's no doubt. And that's what the beauty of prophecy is. It gives us the assurance and that this was the one that was promised. He did everything that the scriptures told of him in the Old Testament. 109 of them. These are just the probability of eight of them. Now, I wanted to tell you also of this phenomenon that remember last week we talked about uh, hermeneutics and how we interpret scripture and we know that we're in a prophetic book of the Bible we know it's a prophet so there's some rules that we need to be aware of and the reason I tell you that there's some rules that we, we need to be aware of because it can affect our interpretation of them one of the things that the prophet would do is that he'd make he would see this vision that God would give him and if you see these mountain peaks One's near and one's far. But in his description of the events, it will sound like the near one happens and then immediately the far one happens. He does not see the valley between the two. I point that out because it helps us to understand a particular passage. For example, today as we, Dr. Tarkington just read this. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Okay, that clearly speaks to that at first coming. 
and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Priests. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom. That speaks of a kingdom to come, the millennial reign of him. So here it's in the same breath, speaking of a near and a far fulfillment, not seeing the valley between them. So we have to understand that that's speaking of a, a further one. Then look at this in Isaiah. And it says, and we see this, uh, this description of hope coming out. And Paul ties into this in Romans. And he says, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples. In him the Gentiles shall hope. The Gentiles, that's you and me, shall hope in this one that comes out of the root of Jesse. So we see a near fulfillment and then a far fulfillment. Then we see um, this, this issue of hope coming through the prophets. And I love this one from Jeremiah. It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. Give you a future and a hope. The prophet just exuded this through his messages. He cautioned the people. Say, look, turn from your wicked ways. Obey the Lord. Walk in his ways. And if you don't, there's going to be judgment. But within that judgment, he also told them of a future, a savior, of a future kingdom, of a, a gracious and an awesome prince of peace, a mighty God, a loving father. So the message this Advent that we celebrate is that the prophet's candle speaks of hope. Confident expectation that this Messiah was going to come. This Savior of the world was going to come. And we're the recipients of it. And we have the good news of that first coming. And we are to share it with others, regardless of their reaction to us. And you know it. You get pushed back, marginalized, um, and ignored. But we have the good news of hope. The prophet's message was one of hope. And to communicate the promise of a savior and a sovereign. In his first advent, Jesus was the hope and the promise of that savior. Next week, we're going to look at the cradle and how that's fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we look at creation. I hope you appreciate that these were promised before the foundations of the earth. And that the prophet's message was one of hope. And then we see next week we're going to look at the cradle. God becoming human flesh. And we're going to close and we'll have our hymn of invitation. And I'm here for you. Uh, if you would like to pray at all, something that's on your heart, you want to uh, talk to me about, I'd be happy to pray with you. If this Christmas you have no hope or are discouraged, let me pray with you about that. We'd love to do that. We appreciate you. Thank you for the, the time together. And we just pray that, that this Christmas that you will remember the prophet's message was one of hope, a confident expectation that Messiah was coming. Let's dismiss with prayer. 
Father, as the prophets of old would tell it on the mountain about the, the hope to come, the promised one, the Messiah, that, Lord, we too have a ministry like that to tell loved ones, friends, neighbors, co-workers, fellow students of this hope of all the world. We pray, Father, that this Christmas season that would keep you central in our thinking, that we would understand that this was your plan from the very beginning and how much you love us. You demonstrated that through creation, the cradle, the cross, and the crown. Lord, we see your goodness. Help us to be your people and to reflect the, the hope that is in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.